0: So we're in Acts 2. If you've got a Bible, open up to Acts 2. If you don't, grab one out of the pew, grab a phone, iPad, whatever you need to uh, get the Word of God before you right now so that you might see it. Uh, As a quick review, so far we've seen that Jesus promised the Holy Spirit to the apostles and um, told them to go to Jerusalem and to wait for it. They go there, they do that. Uh, He tells them, you're going to proclaim this gospel to the ends of the earth. And uh, so they, they're trusting him on that, and then we saw the Holy Spirit come, and with the sound of wind, remember y'all made that amazing sound last week, um, and tongues of fire, and you did not make tongues of fire appear on your head, Uh, but, so, uh, they begin speaking in foreign languages, uh, not some gibberish, but an actual foreign language, uh, French, Italian, whatever it might be, Uh, and they're speaking the mighty works of God, and that's where we left off last week, and we're going to pick up in the text there, We're actually going to start in verse 12, uh, so we'll reread just the very first portion, or last portion we looked at last week, and uh, so we'll read for uh, through verse twenty-one to start, but we'll get to uh, close to the end, verse thirty-eight by the end of today. So uh, let's read. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, "What does this mean?" But others mocking said, "They are filled with new wine." Even on my, on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show, show wonders in the heavens above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor and of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness, and the moon to blood, before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be praised, or shall be saved." Uh, The grass withers and the flower fades. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that we can gather together here today, that we can open your holy word in our own language and read it and understand it. And um, I don't really think that all of us understand just how amazing that is. So God, give us the faith to be amazed at you today in your word. Give us faith to believe the very message we hear in this text, not just as a past event in our lives, but to believe it moment by moment, uh, that you are the Lord. We ask this in the name of the, the Holy One, uh, the only true Savior for, sa- for sinners, Jesus Christ. So we'll just get right into this. Many of them are asking this question here, what does this mean? Uh, And others there present are insinuating, you know what, they're drunk, that's why they're doing this. And I love Peter's defense. It's one of the greatest defenses I've ever seen. He says, uh, it's only the third hour, that's 9 a.m. That's what time it is right now, right? Um, And so he's saying, you know, it's too early in the morning to be drunk. Um, That's how I know you're not drunk, is that it's only 9 o'clock in the morning right now. Uh, Really though, Travis and I were talking about this other day and he said that Jerusalem must not have been a college town uh, because that excuse would not have flown here. Uh, So did you notice here that the 12 apostles are all present and and there's one who actually speaks up. So they all sit there, they all hear this question, and suddenly it's Peter who speaks up and raises his voice. This is the same Peter who denied Christ three times, the same Peter who repented, the same Peter who Jesus restores. And now we are seeing him speak up boldly without any sense of fear at all. Well, what changed in Peter? Peter. I think it's clear here that, well, the, the Holy Spirit has come. The same Holy Spirit who dwells in you if you're a Christian is, is what we're seeing at work in Peter in this moment. Peter's been given this, this faith, this strong faith, and the result is that he is bold to speak about Jesus. When Peter stands up, then he he gives this three point sermon. I don't know if you notice that. Uh, it looks like a very short sermon. Uh, you might be looking at this and thinking, why don't you preach sermons like that? Uh, this is not his whole sermon. This is just the notes like you might be taking right now. Um, and, and so it's not the whole sermon. Um, so don't, don't hold me to this kind of time standard right here. Uh, but you can see here, uh, you can see in this text where each one of his points, three points actually begin, because he addresses the people by a different name. You can see uh, the men of Judea, the men of Israel, brothers. Um, and then each, each point actually quotes from the Old Testament. So he has this point and he kind of explains it uh, with the text of the Old Testament. And, and each of those is looking at a prophecy. Um, here's how prophecy works. We, we tend to think it's just predicting the future. But, but really, when we read this, sometimes it's confusing because you see, well, that was for that time, and, and where, where is the dividing line? And it's not real clear sometimes. Uh, that's because there is a short-term and a long-term fulfillment of, of prophecy. Um, and so often prophets would say one thing that applied to, to their day uh, and then the prophecy expands, and it applies to something that's not part of their day. And we see that over and over, something that's bigger, something that's down in the future. Uh, for instance, if I were a prophet today, I might say, and this is not a real prophet, so don't stole me later. Uh, Here, O oh Kansas, there will arise in the little apple a coach who will nearly lead you to a national championship. And the land shall carry his name, and fields will be covered in deep purple, and then there shall be trophies of gold for every man, woman, and child. This man will be lifted up and exalted at the right hand of God and be righteousness for his people. Okay, so I started talking about one guy. Do you know who it is? You've lived here two minutes, you know who it is. Coach Bill Snyder, right? Uh, But by the end, I hope it was clear. I hope you're not delusional and think I was still talking about him. Uh, By the end, it's speaking about Christ. And that's the way these prophecies were. And so, and, and, and so it's one thing for one time and then expands to something greater. And that's what we're going to see when we look at Joel here in a minute. Uh, this, this prophecy here begins with in the last days. Okay, this is literally not the very last few days of the world, right? Um, and that's because really there's only two ways of thinking when we're talking about time in these terms. The, the former days or the last days. And Peter quotes from Joel to help him understand that we are now in this epoch of time considered the last days. Uh, And so you and I, we live in the last days. That's a statement we can make. It doesn't mean that like four days from now the end is necessarily going to come. Because the apostles also lived in the last days. Very long days. Um, So keep this perspective. Uh, Peter here is answering this question. What does this mean? What does it mean that people are speaking about God in languages that they don't really speak? Uh, What does it mean that all this craziness is going on, uh, that these people are witnessing is going on? What does that mean? And so when Peter points to Joel, it's because he's speaking to to Jews, right? We've been told that these are Jewish people who have been traveling and they're in Jerusalem. Um, And it's because he's speaking to Jews, uh, he knows that they are going to know the Old Testament very well. And he's showing them, look... The prophet Joel, who you know, who you've read, who you follow, the prophet Joel was talking about this moment right here. Um, And that's why the whole point of Joel's passage is, uh, is not that there will be prophecy. There's always been prophecy. It's not that the Holy Spirit will now exist. The Holy Spirit has always existed. The point of Joel's passage is that the Holy Spirit has come to dwell in all of God's people, not just some, not just a few he goes through there men and and women young and and old and not just those of high standing of some sense of uh nobility but but even the servants uh it has no makes no difference and and so at this point we're looking at this sermon of peter and i think it's easy to think okay this is going to be a sermon about the holy spirit it's not and it's easy to think that because this is this is pentecost we're talking about right i mean he's going to explain this holy spirit to us but This is not primarily about the Holy Spirit. It's about Jesus Christ. That's what Peter's sermon is about. It's it's what every sermon should be about. Old Testament sermons, New Testament sermons, topical sermons. All of them should come back and point to Jesus Christ no matter what. And, And I'm telling you right here, Peter's sermon is about Jesus Christ. Look at verse 21. It says, And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. You know, those aren't Peter's words right there. He's still quoting Joel from the Old Testament. Um, and that doesn't sound like an Old Testament prophecy, does it? I when I read that, out, just like that, my first thought is to think of Jesus, right? And, and it is. It's it's Joel chapter 2 that he's quoting from, verse 32. You can go and look it up if you wanted to. Uh, maybe you can. I, I, you know, I became a, a Christian as a, a teenager. Many of you know that. And so uh, I found that Joel, really all the prophets were this litmus test where um, you knew. Who grew up in the church if they could find it right the youth pastor would say you know let's uh someone read from joel and there's always that guy in the corner who who starts reading and you're like yeah he grew up in the church um that wasn't me though i was in the other corner still looking for hezekiah which someone told me existed even though it doesn't <clears throat> but peter's point though is is really to point back to this text. text it exists uh, and he's saying this this has always been the message always been the message it has always been that everyone who calls upon the name of the lord shall be saved see that that means we might say God I am worthy of judgment I am deserving of your wrath because I'm a sinner and I sin and I'm asking you for mercy that's, that's calling on the name of the Lord Um, it's like the story that Jesus shares in Luke chapter 18. Remember the Pharisee is there and he prays to God, just pridefully listing off, look what I've done, look how great I've been, look at all these good deeds. And and then then we see the lowly tax collector who just comes in and he beats his chest and he says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's calling on the name of the Lord. And so then what, what Peter's doing here with the rest of his sermon, it's telling these Jewish people the actual name of that Lord. The actual name of the Lord that they are to call upon, the name Jesus. Because that's the name they're to call upon. And really, that begins Peter's second point. Verses 23 through 28. You've got the text before you. Let's read that. 22 through 28. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth... A man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him and your missed as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand and I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the path of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. See, Peter is again bold and he speaks up about Jesus. First he says that Jesus was a man. That's significant there. and A man. He he even names a town, right? Nazareth. Uh, That's the town he's from. It's a a small, insignificant town. It's like saying, you know, Jim from Womigo. We all kind of know the town. Maybe you've been there, maybe you haven't. Uh, And and really, it's just a reminder to us that Jesus didn't just poof, appear out of nowhere. Uh, It wasn't like that. He grew up. He actually lived in a town, and he worked there, and he built things out of wood, and he has brothers, and he has sisters, and he has friends there. And, and, you know, really, in one sense, he's just a typical Jewish man. Uh, Some years ago, I think it was 2003, Popular Mechanics actually did some research to find out what the typical Jewish man would have looked like, because we all have these images of Jesus, right, he looks like the guy in the mirror, Uh, and that's not always the case. Uh, Jesus was five foot one, 110 pounds, which means most of the people in this room are actually taller than our savior, Uh, assuming he's the average male, that's what we hear, right? And scripture is very clear, there was nothing physically impressive about Jesus. You hear statistics like that, and you're like, yeah, there wasn't. but there is something unique about him. Uh, and that's where our text doesn't just leave the fact that he's a man. It says, uh, verse 22, Peter's saying Jesus was attested to by God. Uh, that word, attested, means certified, uh, authenticated, uh, kind of approved in that sense. And in this case, what we see is that God is the one who certified who Jesus was. How did he do that? Um, miracles. What he's saying here is that miracles showed that Jesus was truly unique. Um, You know, in the Gospels, there are 36 miracles recorded. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you'll find 36 recorded. And what's amazing about that is that's only what was recorded. Uh, We studied the Gospel of John in the small groups. You remember right at the very, very end, John's writing, he says, Now there are also many other things that Jesus did. For every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Uh, That includes a lot of miracles. See, we must remember, though, that the miracles were not designed to convert people. They were to authenticate that Jesus is the Christ, that Jesus is the Savior that God had promised. Now, I think there's a tendency in our day for people to suggest that the miracles never really happen, that there's some explanation for them. You you hear these crazy things, you know, well, he wasn't walking in water, it was a sandbar, it was low tide, um, you know, and they decided they would record that. Uh, no, but look at verse 24. One of the things I love about this, it says, The mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. See, many of the people there saw these things with their own eyes. And, and Peter's pointing out, y'all witness these things. You've seen this. And so what I really love about this is that today we spend so much time trying to convince people that the miracles actually happened. That's not what Peter's doing here. So the miracles are not being contested at all because so many saw them with their own eyes. And so here, Peter is pointing to the miracles as the evidence for what, is, what he's really trying to convince them of. So the argument that Peter is making in this text is that Jesus is the Lord and the Christ. We're going to see that real clear in verse 33, but first, he's establishing this historical record of, of what happened to Jesus. He's explaining the story to them. Uh, look at verse 23. He says, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge knowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Did you see that? Um, this is one of those texts in Scripture that uh, when it was first pointed out to me, I wanted to deny it existed. I wanted to go with Thomas Jefferson and just cut it out of the Bible. Uh, gone, done with that. Uh, because when you look at that, it's saying that it was God's plan to kill Jesus. We can't make sense out of that. So you read this verse and you just think it must be wrong. Something's missing here. I'm not understanding this. Um, some years ago, I remember, Laura and I lived in Dallas, and uh, we went down to... to Daily Daily Plaza, I forget what you call it. It's where John F. K. was was actually shot. And you can see it. there's X's on the ground, and you can you can witness this. And part of that is that there's these, these unofficial uh, tour guides that just wander the streets and for a price will walk you around and tell you what happened. Only their version of what happened is not what you'll read in textbooks. It's a conspiracy theory. Uh, and the conspiracy theory they tell is <clears throat> that Lyndon B. Johnson was behind the assassination of JFK. He planned the whole thing. And they started telling me this, and it sounds a little crazy, and then they start giving you all these motives, and, and, and you know, you're hearing this, you're saying, you're telling me that the vice president planned the killing of the president. Um, absolutely crazy, but it was plausible. There's that little hint of, okay, this maybe did happen, because, because there was motivation. They begin to explain, you know, if JFK was assassinated, then LBJ becomes the president, and now we have a freeway going around town with his name on it. Uh, see, the motivation was selfish in this case, but it existed, and because there was motivation, it actually became a plausible theory on some level. Uh, in verse 23 here, we read that Jesus was killed on the cross, what's it say? According to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Why, though? What, what's the motivation for God the Father to ordain the death of the Son, His Son, His only Son? This is where it's pretty weighty you were you're the motivation the forgiveness of the sin of god's people was the motivation redemption was the motivation so so you get that um see the other day i was reading this and i'm thinking here's the worst events in the history of the world the most unjust unamazing, like just the worst day you can possibly think of and somehow god uses that moment for good for my salvation for the salvation of his people How is it then that I still look at the terrible events of my life and I doubt that God can somehow use that for good? You know, next time something terrible is happening in your life, I'm not saying not to mourn, but, I mean, remember this moment. Remember that God even worked the death of his own son by guilty men. What does it say? By the the hands of, where's it at? Lawless men. By the hands of lawless men, Uh, for good I hope you also notice here that Peter isn't trying to convince anyone of God's sovereignty that's not the argument here Um, or even God's sovereignty in the death of his son he's just stating it as fact this is what is the last portion of verse 23 then tells us that Jesus was killed by the hands of lawless men okay if I would kept going I would have gotten there right Uh, see we know that those who fulfill God's plan are not being forced against their will they're held responsible for their action. They're called lawless men, right? They're guilty. Uh, it was God's plan, and yet they willingly took an innocent man and they drove nails through his, his hands, through his flesh, uh, onto a cross that resulted in his death. See, in this verse, we see the great mystery of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. That mystery I will not be unraveling for you today. We have to be out of here at some point, And I don't have all the answers for that. But we see it. We see it right there in God's text. The responsibility of man and the sovereignty of God. Okay. So before we get too far off, I want you to remember this is a sermon by Peter, and all this supports his second point, which is that Jesus is a man who could not stay dead. Could not stay dead. And that's why Peter reads from Psalm 16. Look at verse 27. That's where it is. He says, For you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. See, Hades does not mean, as we commonly think, uh, hell. It means realm of the dead. It's just where dead are. Uh, and that, what it means here is that Jesus could not stay dead because he is the Holy One that Psalm 16 speaks about, that he's quoting from here. Uh, And then Peter moves on to his third point, he didn't belabor that much, uh, in his sermon, which is this, that Jesus is exalted. That's a phrase we know, we don't think much about it, Uh, we'll see what it means. Uh, Let's look at verses 29 through 35. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God has sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out on this uh, out this, that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. And so his point is that King David is is dead. We can go to his grave right now. We can look at it. We can dig it up if we want. That'd be creepy, but he's there. That's where his body is. And verse 34 shows us, you know, that only David's soul has gone to heaven. His body indeed is in the grave. Uh, and And Jesus, however... Uh, Jesus' body is not in the grave. He has been resurrected, and they're saying there are so many witnesses here. No one can deny this. Uh, Peter quotes Psalm 110 to show that when David wrote this, he was not speaking about himself but about the resurrection of Christ. Uh, Verse 34 also tells us that Jesus is exalted at the right hand of God. That's the second highest place of authority in the entire universe. That's it. And so then jesus receives the holy spirit from the father and what does he do well he pours it out just like he promised he would right he he sends the holy spirit to his people so that the answer that that peter gives to, uh and, and so then that's the answer that peter gives to these people when they ask this question what does this mean what does this mean he's saying it means the spirit has come it means that jesus is risen from the dead it means that jesus is exalted and sits at the right hand of the Father. And then our last portion of the text today is asking a different question. So listen for it. I'm going to read uh, starting in verse 36 and we'll go to the end of uh, verse 38. But, But listen for this. He's asking a different question. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now Peter's preaching. Now he's really getting excited. You remember that Christ is not Jesus's last name. That's not the way you'd look it up in a phone book. They had phones. Uh, It's his title. Um, It's Greek for Messiah. Savior, the one who comes to save, and Peter is telling them, you have been waiting for a Savior. That's why you're here in Jerusalem right now, is that there's that promise of a Savior, and and Jesus is the Lord, and Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the Savior that you have been waiting for. And what did y'all do with him? What did you do with Jesus? You crucified him. I love the response. Verse 37, it says they were cut to the heart. Literally stabbed to the heart. So they were contrite. They didn't argue they're innocent. They were broken. This almost realization that the Savior they had hoped for had come and they had missed it. So the people believed Peter. They believed what he's saying about Christ. And so we we know that the Spirit is working them. So they ask this only reasonable question. You can ask in that situation, verse 37. um, Those gathered are speaking to the apostles and they say, brothers, what shall we do? What shall we do? I can still remember when I was in high school, I've told you a little of the story before, but I was at a a promise keeper's conference and there was a a man who played in the NFL who was speaking and he did a, a great job on some level. He had me absolutely convinced that I was deserving of the wrath of God, I was deserving of hell. Uh, And I was broken, and I was afraid in that moment. And I can remember feeling something similar to what these people must have felt in our text, this fearful sense of, is it too late? I mean, what what can I do? What should I do? Like, how do I get out of this? And, And the man's answer to me was, raise your hand if you want to be forgiven. All right, I did that. And then his answer was, okay, well, now leave your seat and come up here. Come to the front. All right, I did that. Once I was up front, he told me, you know, there's some people with cards and they're going to pray a prayer with you and and you're going to sign this card that says that you've accepted Jesus. And so, all right, I did that. And yet years later, I honestly struggled a lot because whether I was accepted by, whether I accepted Jesus rather, wasn't the important thing. I struggled because I needed to know, did Jesus accept me? That was the bigger question. And so I want you to look very closely here at how Peter answers this question, what shall we do? Verse 38. He says, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gifts of the Holy Spirit. I think you can come in here with your Christian knowledge and think, well, why didn't he say have faith in Jesus? Why didn't he say that? It's because faith is implied here. No one can repent without faith. See, God-given faith in Jesus is what causes repentance to God every time. See, the salvation in Scripture is often summarized in a variety of different ways. Uh, Ephesians 2 says it is by grace through faith. Uh, Acts 16.21 is going to put it this way. It says, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Romans 10.9 says that we are to confess with our mouths that Jesus is the Lord. And you see, if God has given you faith, you will believe Jesus. You will confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. And like our text says, you will repent and be baptized. And we're going to look at baptism a little closer next week. Um, today, let's consider repentance real quick. Um, so, to repent at the most basic level means to think differently afterwards, right? To think differently afterwards. Uh, Say I get angry at you. I get angry because you're a Yankee fan. That's reasonable, right? And I just punch you in the face. You said something. You deserved it. Um, I did it because in that moment, that's what I wanted to do. It actually seemed reasonable in that moment when things were not being thought reasonably. Later, I, I stop and I consider what I did. Um... With God-given faith at work in me, and and so I begin to think differently about what I did. Now I know it was wrong according to God's standards. I I see my failure, I see my sin in choosing to punch you in the face. And I ask for forgiveness from you and from God, and I seek to live in the opposite, to think differently. Uh, A life where I no longer go around punching people for being Yankee fans. That's a difficult life, but that's kind of what we're seeing here. On a larger scale, a scale of your entire life, uh, Peter is also calling to repentance. Peter is calling them and us to repent of their unbelief, of their sinful life, of their failures, and of simply acknowledging their sin or their need of a Savior. We don't, we don't do altar calls. Maybe you've noticed that by this point. Um, we don't because they're often, usually, manipulative. Um, But we do call every one of us to believe the gospel, to repent of our sin, and to be baptized, because Scripture calls us to do that. And we want what's biblically best for everyone who walks through those doors. And this means that our, our hope, our desire, is for God to give faith, which will lead you to repentance. Uh, so let me end just by saying this. If, if you do not believe that Jesus is the Christ who has died for your sins and was risen from the dead and is seated at the right hand of God the Father, there is no shame in that. Let me explain that. Um, what I mean is many here present have been there at some point in their life. Many still struggle against doubts in their life from time to time, and it's okay to be there, but don't live your life there not okay to settle there. It's not good for you. It's just not. Um, And and so what I mean by saying this is we want to be a a, a church. As a church, we want to pray for you. We want to help you see answers and and show you from Scripture uh, answers to help with your doubts. And our hope is that the gift, uh, that God will give you the gift of faith. That's our hope because that's what you need. That's what we all need. Uh, And so I'll say this, you know, talk to Travis, to John, to talk to anyone you trust who you know is a follower of Christ. And do it sooner rather than later because life is very fragile. And this is, you know, kind of a morbid thought. But the truth is, the the sun might rise tomorrow, but you might not. There's no guarantees. Uh, And the call of Peter in our text is the call of God in our lives to repent today. Let's pray. Gracious God, <clears throat> work by your Spirit through this, your Word, and all of us present today. Cause us to call on the name of the Lord, to call on Jesus to save us, and to be filled with your Holy Spirit, who was promised, and who you actually sent fulfilling that promise. May we repent of our sin, maybe for the first time, maybe simply as a part of living a life of faith in a fallen world. Yes, Lord, may we look to Jesus with faith for the forgiveness of our sin each day, each moment. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.